Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. We have, for the last month, been talking about the things that God uses to grow your faith. And, and underlying all of this is a belief that God is at work in every single life. That God is at work, um, working in, in each and every person. And, and that there are certain activities um, or practices that, that we can take on, that we can engage in, that will help us better see and better understand and better cooperate with what God is doing. And, and in the Bible, if you read the Bible at all, <clears throat> you find as you read through the story, that especially when you get to the New Testament, we are invited into a relationship with God. That we are invited into a connection with God through our faith in Jesus Christ. And, and it is a relationship. And like any relationship, it is based on trust. That's really what faith is. So when we're talking about growing your faith, God growing your faith, what we're really talking about is deepening our trust in God. That entrusting Him with more and more of our lives. Um, Because that's really what it's all about. And we talked about, the first week we talked about, there's a personal component to this. There is a a time that you spend alone with God. Times in prayer, times in scripture reading, where where you just, just you and God. That you get some time to learn to listen to His voice. And that's a vital element and, and it's very, very important and very, very personal. But there's also a relational component to this whole thing that we need to surround ourselves with spiritually influential people, people that can help us along the way, people that can um, carry, help carry the load sometimes, people who are a little bit ahead of us that we can learn and grow from, people that are behind us that we can help bring along. And then there is the serving component of it that we talked about last week. There is something about serving that really grows your faith. When you step out and do something that you are not personally um, able to do or personally equipped to do necessarily, God's spirit works in that. And, and, and it grows your faith when you begin to start serving other people. So, so those are some of the practices, some of the things we've talked about. Now, today we're going to talk about one more. By the way, this is not an exhaustive list, um, but it's just four things that we have discovered um, over the time. And um, today, the one that we're going to talk about is not a practice or an activity that you actively engage in um, necessarily, but it does involve you. A number of years ago, I heard of a survey that was um, given. They surveyed thousands of people, thousands of believers, and they asked them basically this question. When did you grow the most in your faith? Describe a time or, or what, what, you know, what went on, what did you go through, what, what did you experience, then what time in your life did you grow the most in your faith, in your relationship with God. Anybody want to guess what the number one response was? Trouble. Troubles. Pain, adversity, difficulties, whatever you want to call it. Most people said the time that they grew the most in their faith, the time that they grew deeper in their trust with God, was when they went through times of adversity, times of difficulty. Now, isn't that great news? I mean, doesn't that just really encourage you? You just want to go out and find some trouble so you can just grow like crazy, you know? Maybe you've got a little bit extra you could share with the person next to you. I'm sure you'd be happy to pass it along, you know? But but the truth is, when you look back on it, and if we went around this room, and each of us told our journey of faith, told our story, I bet every one of us, looking back on it, would say, you know, this point, that point, some of the times of my greatest pain became the defining moments of my faith. It was in the most difficult situations. Looking back on it, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back on it, and I would never, by the way, choose to do that again. If I could avoid it, I would do it like, I, you know, with, like I'd avoid it with the plague. But, but truthfully, if I looked back on it, those were the times 
that I grew the most. Paul writes about this to the Roman church in Romans chapter 8. Um, and it's a long chapter, and we're just going to kind of hit some of the highlights in here because um, we can't read the whole thing all the way through. But the setting is he is talking about this idea that we live in a world that's falling apart, that, that things go wrong, stuff happens, okay? And he gets to verse 18, and he says, But I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That that's what God's doing. The world is falling apart, and it gets difficult sometimes. In fact, sometimes we experience some of that falling apartness. Okay? But he goes on then in verse 26. He says, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called, and those He called, He also justified, those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he goes on, verse 20, 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's saying every life encounters difficulty. Every one of us here go through times of trouble, times of pain. It's, it's unavoidable. Every life encounters it. But here's the deal. When you go through those times, you have a choice. And you can either let those things drive you away from God, or you can let those things cause you to lean in more closely to him. And it really comes down with understanding what it is that God's doing. And and that's what he goes on and describes here. And that's what we're going to look at together this morning. How it is that God uses difficulties to grow our faith. How does he do that? Well, one of the things you find out right away is that he uses those difficulties, first of all, to just get our attention. He uses them to get our attention because it is very, very easy to do life as if this is all there is. That, that this is it. My 60, 70, 80, however many years I get, this is it. And that's all there is. And be, the reason is we live in a part of the world and in such a time that, that is all about comfort. We cater to comfort, particularly in our society. I mean, you, you, can, you can see it just in, in, our, in our cars, in our automobiles. 
Yeah, you know, my first car, I was happy if it ran, you know, because half the time it didn't. But nowadays, you can get cars with heated power seats, you know, because you wouldn't want to have to put any effort into moving your seat forward or anything like that, and you sure wouldn't want to sit in a cold seat. So you can get a car with heated power seats. You get a, a key fob now. Because it's way too much work to stick a key in and turn it. You've got to be able to push a button and just automatically unlocks for you. Cars now have power windows because that's a whole lot of work, you know. Power door locks because pushing a button down, man, I don't want to strain myself, you know. And I was looking online this week. Some of the more luxury cars, they have the, listen to this. There are cars that offer features like this. Power mirrors with memory. Yeah, so you can program it, and you can get in your car, push a button, and the mirrors will automatically, all of them will adjust to fit just the way that you sit when you drive. Yeah. I, there's one car, car maker that is now offering rain-sensing wipers because you can't figure out when it's time to turn them on. Yeah? <laughs> but, but that's our society. That is our whole society. We live in the pursuit of the good life, and it's all about comfort and convenience. And that's why we get so ticked off when we're inconvenient. Ed. <laughs> when we're not comfortable. That's why it bothers us so much. And the thing is that it makes us focus on a lifestyle of enhancement. The things that I, I, I you know, before I didn't even think about in a car, now that I get them, I wouldn't buy a car without them. You know, convenience has become, where luxuries now become necessities. And that's our lifestyle. We live for a lifestyle enhancement and pain avoidance. Whatever we can do to relieve ourselves, to get rid of, to not experience any, any pain. And the problem with that is, is that it gets us to a point where this world is our only reality. We forget that there's something more. And everything is consumed with what I get here in this life. It becomes our only reality. And the irony of it all is none of that stuff satisfies Because no matter what you get, what luxuries you add, what conveniences you get, you still want more. You want it bigger. You want it better. I want it bigger. I want it better. I want it shinier. I want it newer. We know whatever the latest thing is, I got to get it. And our whole life becomes centered around this world. And what Paul is saying is, this is not all there is. Remember, this is not all that there is. We live such insulated lives and such you know, comfortable lives that we don't realize this is, that all this stuff is going to go sometime. It's all going to come to an end. This is not all that there is. In fact, he says, all of creation is in the process of falling apart. That, that's what's happening. And, and in some ways, things get better, but in other ways, they get worse and worse and worse. And the world is falling apart. He says it this way. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That, that all of creation knows it's not lasting forever. And there's this, this groaning in all of creation that says things are not as they should be. Things are not here to last. And in fact, he goes on. He says, we too. Not only so, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption. Because deep down inside, we know and we long for something more. We know that. 
And when we go through times of difficulty and pain, it's like reminders, this is not all there is. If you're basing all your life here, you're going to be disappointed because stuff around here falls apart. Things go wrong. Life happens. And, and, and those kind of experiences are the reminder that this is not all there is. Did you notice? Have you ever noticed, by the way, even people who don't believe in God cry out to him in a crisis? Have you noticed that? Even if they don't believe in God at all, something goes wrong in life. Oh, God! You know? Because deep down inside every one of us, we know. We know this is not really all there is. There's got to be something more. And what God is doing is he's getting our attention. He is reminding us through pain that there is a need in our life. It's like a, a man who will not go to the doctor. Just refuses to go to the doctor. It's not that bad. No, I'll get over it. Yeah, it's just a little hurt. Oh, I'll rub some dirt in it. You know, whatever. <laughs> Won't go to the doctor until the pain gets so bad, they'll finally go. I have a friend. I have a friend who is in desperate need of hip surgery. He's like in his late 50s, okay? But he needs hip surgery. And it's been, get, it's been like this for like five, six, almost as long as I've known him. And his limp gets worse and worse and worse. And he can barely walk. In fact, I heard the other day, he was actually thinking about getting one of those scooters. You know, the old people scooters things, you know? I said, get the surgery. Everybody's going to laugh at you sitting on that scooter, you know? At least, you know, get the surgery. Why do we? Because... We don't want to admit the weakness. We don't want to admit the need. And sometimes it takes great pain to remind us there's something more. We need an answer. And there are things in this life that we don't understand. And that's why we turn to God. Because we're looking for someone to make sense out of it. And that's why we turn to him in prayer. And that's why, by the way, he invites us to do that. And sometimes, sometimes the circumstances and the pain is so great that we don't even know how to pray. Paul goes on, he talks about that. He said, we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. He says, there are some times when the stuff of life gets so overwhelming, when things get so bad, you don't even know how to pray about it. You know, all you can do is just (laughs) groan. But he says, in those groanings, the Spirit of God himself shows up. The Spirit of God living within you. He says, he intercedes for us. In fact, the word literally translated would say, he hyper prays. <laughs> when you are praying and all you can get out is a groan, he is hyper praying. He is interceding for you. Because he goes on, he says, because he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. That he searches our hearts. He knows what's going on deep inside. Better than we do. And he knows what God is up to. He knows what the outcome is going to be. And so he stands in the middle. And intercedes. And hyper prays for us. God understands the language of the groan. (laughs) It's a language he understands. He knows what it means. And so he invites us. In fact, he's really trying to get our intention through the hurt that we would come to him. And as we turn our attention to him, he does something else. He then uses those difficulties to shape our character. He uses those things to, to, to make a change in our life, to shape us in some way. There is a progression of thought if you read through this section that we read through this morning. He starts out saying, we don't know. 
There are a lot of things we don't know, we don't understand, that don't make sense to us. And sometimes it gets so bad that we don't even know how to pray. There's a lot of, we just, we don't know. That's the immediate. That's, that's the stuff that we're going through right now. We don't understand. We don't know. We don't even know how to pray. But, he says, there's something we do know. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He says, we don't know a lot. We don't even know how to pray sometimes. But we do know God works. We do know that God is at work. And when God works, he works good. God works in all things. In all things. In other words, he never wastes a hurt. He never wastes wastes the difficulty of your life. And it also means there is nothing in your life that is beyond his ability to redeem. Nothing. Because he uses all things. The good, the bad, the ups, the lows, the you know, ins, the outs. He uses all things. In fact, the, the word is it's, it's, it's literally translated, it's a synergy. There's a synergistic stuff that happens when God gets involved. And, and he takes what's going on in our lives, whatever it is, and he works it for good. All things. And for our good. He has our best in mind. He has a long-range plan. We only see the immediate, and we don't understand. And we don't even know how to pray. But he says, what we do know is God has something in mind. God is at work. And when he works, he does good. And he has a purpose. He has a purpose for those who love him. Because that's what he's getting at. That's what he's getting at. It's this relationship. In a relationship, he wants us to trust. To trust his character. About three and a half months ago, uh, I became a grandfather. Um, daughter had a baby girl, beautiful baby girl. And I, and I got to be there, you know, right at the birth. And, and, and I, remember, I remember holding her in my hands, tiny little thing, and thinking about her future. More so than I did even with my own kids, because I'm a little bit further along in life now, and I've had a little bit more experiences. And I sat there and holding her in my hands, and I thought, I wonder what the future holds for her. What's she going to go through? What is life going to be like for her? And I just looked at her. <laughs> I said, little Emma, welcome to the world. <laughs> Jonathan Haig writes about this. He puts it beautifully. He says, imagine you had a child. And when that child enters the world, for the first five minutes of that child's existence, you are given a script of, what that, of that child's entire life. And... You get an eraser so that you can edit it. You can take out whatever you want. If you had that ability, and if you read the script, and in fact, the script says your child will have a learning disability in grade school. That reading, which comes so easily for some kids, will be a laborious for yours. Then when your child gets to high school, the script says he will make a great circle of friends, but one of those friends will die of cancer. After high school, he will get into the college that he wanted to attend. But while there, there will be a car crash and he'll lose a leg and go through a hard depression. A few years years later, he will get a great job and then he will lose that job in an economic downturn. A little while after that, he'll get married, but then we'll have to go through the grief of separation. So you get this script and you get to see and you get an eraser. 
What would you take out? What would you erase? I'm sure most of us would say we would love to erase all the stuff that would cause him pain and hurt and grief. We would want to take out all of those adversities, all of those struggles, all of those problems and difficulties. We would love to take away every setback, every disappointment. We would love to take all of those things away. But then think about it. If we did, if we did, would that child grow up to be the person he needs to become, she needs to become? If we took all that stuff out, would they become more generous or more self-centered? If we took all that stuff out, would they be stronger or weaker of character? If we took that stuff out, what would be the lasting effect Because the truth is, we know. We know that sometimes difficulty is the stuff that grows us and makes us better. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, our idea of God is the idea of every child. That a father is nothing but a massive benevolence who is always smiling, always giving out money, always giving everything we ask for immediately. But he goes on, he says, a time comes when you have to allow certain things to happen to him in order that he may learn. We live in an area that, that people are just, they, they watch out for their kids. You know, they're, in fact, there's a, there's a term called helicopter parents. They're, just, they're trying to smooth everything out for this kid. If something goes wrong in school, it must be the school's fault. You know, they come and complain to the principal. Complain, sure. It might not be that they, they're, you know, little Johnny messed up, you know. And no, no, it couldn't be his fault. And they're always trying to smooth the way, always trying to fix things for their kids. What will those kids look like years from now? There are some things that cannot be learned any other way. There is an undeniable relationship between pain and deep, enduring, profound, trusting faith. There's an undeniable relationship between those two. And we would never choose to go through those things. And and what's really happening is God is shaping and molding our character. Very often in Scripture, an example is given of a potter at the wheel with his clay. That God is like this potter sitting at the wheel and, he, and he's shaping and forming this clay into a, into a vessel, into, into a pot, into a vase, whatever it is. And he's working at this thing. But, but he gets so far in it and, and there's some chunks of rock in it. So he's got to kind of smash it all down and pick out all the rock pieces and then, and then start to work at it again. And, and sometimes it just gets a little too wobbly and it's not taking the shape that he wants. So he's got to smash it all down and start all over again. And, and he's, but he's working. He's shaping. He is molding. And that's what God is doing. That's what he says. Those things God, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He is shaping us. He is molding us. And the Bible says, in fact, on one occasion, it says, would the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? And that's what we want to do. God, what are you doing? It's not up to us. God is shaping God is molding. 
He is conforming us into the image of his son. And whatever he is doing, it is good. And it is so good that there is no comparison. When we see the outcome in it of it, there is no comparison, the outcome with the pain that we went through. That's what he goes on and says. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That he's doing something. And as painful as it might be, he says, it is by, it is, it's not comparable to the, what the results will be because of it. And by the way, Paul doesn't write this in theory. He doesn't write these things, you know, just theoretically. You've got to understand something about Paul's life. In fact, he writes about it, all of his experiences in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more fre- frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And we know that in all things, God works for the good. See, he knew hurt. He knew pain. He experienced all of that stuff. But here's what I know. That God, through all of that, is working good. And through those things, as he's shaping our character, ultimately what he's doing through these difficulties, he is trying to embrace us in his love. That's what this is all about. This is the heart of the matter. Because he goes on, he says, what then shall we say in response to these things? In other words, what's the bottom line? What if we boil it all down, when we get down to the heart of the matter, what is it? What is it that we're supposed to learn in all of this stuff? He says, what shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That it may not feel like it at the time, might not seem like it at the time, but God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? As difficult as it might be, God is for you. Do you know that two people can go through the exact same circumstances, the exact same situation, and have two completely different responses? Exact same circumstances. Two different people, two different responses. A guy named Albert Ellis actually wrote about this. And he's kind of the father of the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy um, psychologist. And what he, he, he put together what he called the ABCs of, of, of our emotional life. He says the A stands for antecedent. That's, that's the activities. That's the things that happen. That's the stuff of life. Okay? That's all the circumstances. That's the antecedent. And the C stands for the consequences. This is the result. This is what happens in us. What makes the difference, he says, is the B in the middle. And the B stands for belief. Belief. Exact same set of circumstances. Two different outcomes. Two different beliefs. It's like the difference between a cat and a dog. Because a dog thinks, you love me, you feed me, you provide for me, you care for me, you must be God. And a cat thinks, you love me, you feed me, you provide for me, you care for me, I must be God. Yeah? <laughs> exact same circumstances, different beliefs. Paul is saying here, if you don't get anything else, get this. God is for you. He is for you. And and this is how you know that it's true. 
God did not spare His own Son. He gave Him up for us all. Then won't He also freely give us everything else? He says, if you have any doubts about this, look at the cross. If you have any, any concerns or any questions about this, if you doubt for a moment that God is for you, that God loves you, look at the cross because look at all that he did to express it to you. There can be no doubt when you see what Jesus did for us on the cross. He said, that's where we look. He couldn't make his love any clearer because he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Stephen Seedman's wrote a book, Wounds That Heal. Great book. He writes these words. When we first heard the good news of salvation, most of us were likely told that Christ died for our sins. However, we also need to stress that on the cross, he bore our sufferings as well. The bad news is that we are both sinners and sufferers, villains and victims. The good news is that the the cross addresses both conditions. This means that Christ not only identifies with us completely in our suffering because he has had an experience like ours, he also participates in our suffering because our very own experience of suffering has mysteriously been laid on him. He goes on, of course, knowing that God suffers with us doesn't make our pain disappear or explain the enigma of suffering, but it does enable us to keep trusting God and believing in his goodness even in the midst of the inexplicable. We may not be able to trace God's hand in what has happened, but we can still trust God's heart. And trusting God's heart encourages us to turn toward him instead of away from him. He couldn't make it any more clear. God is for you. And though the circumstances of your life right now might make you question that and doubt that that might be possibly true, look at the cross. Look at the price Jesus paid. Look at how God expressed his love so completely and totally for you because he is for you. And then he finishes with these words. So he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like he threw everything in there that he could think of, everything but the kitchen sink. You know, you can almost imagine him writing this down. And he's saying, I am convinced that neither death nor life can separate us from the God. Wait, wait, no, no. I am convinced neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, uh, neither present nor the future nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. It's like he couldn't come up with enough things. So he just ended with anything else that I couldn't think of. None of that stuff can separate us from God's love. And here's the progression. We don't know. We don't know. There are things in this life we do not understand and we do not know. And sometimes they get to the point that they are so beyond us that we don't even know how to pray. We don't know. But what we do know is that God works good for those who love him. And the kicker is this, because we are convinced that nothing will separate us from his love. That's what we hang our hat on. We don't know, but we do know this. God is at work and he's working good because we know that nothing, we're convinced, nothing can separate us from his love. And that's what he wants you to understand. Whatever's going on in your life, 
whatever struggle, whatever problem, whatever hurt, whatever pain, whatever adversity, whatever, whatever is going on in your life, God is for you. And he is at work in you, working good because he loves you. He loves you. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. 